Hello, anesthesia enthusiasts, and welcome to another episode of Style Points. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Peter Arabal about GLP agonists and their anesthetic management. However, before we get to Dr. Arabal, I'm introducing a new segment to the show, which I'm calling the RSI. The RSI, of course, stands for Resident Selected Information. Essentially, it's going to be a short segment at the beginning of the podcast where an educational topic is presented in just a few minutes. Here today for that segment is Nate Moore. Before becoming one of our chief residents, Nate toiled away for two years in an internal medicine residency before he finally saw the light and switched to anesthesiology. He's a co-producer of the show and a good friend of mine. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What resident-selected information do you have for us today? I'm here to talk to you about the TAG. Imagine this scenario. You're in the OR and you've never seen so much blood before. You wish you remembered your shoe covers today. Worse, blood bank just called you. There's a shortage of every blood product in the city. You need a test that tells you what blood, pro what blood products your patient needs and fast. What will you do? The TAG, or thromboelastogram, is a test that accurately measures a patient's clotting function and directs you toward what kind of blood products you need to give them. It also provides results in real time, often more quickly than traditional clotting tests. Studies have shown that using the TIG to guide resuscitation can help safely reduce the amount of blood product given in certain patient populations, making it a valuable tool to help reduce the incidence of transfusion complications and preserve our limited blood supply. One thing that helped me understand how the TIG works is understanding how the TIG graph is actually generated by the TIG machine. Um, if you don't have a picture of a TIG in front of you, think about a wine glass lying on its side. Imagine the thin stem of the wine glass is on the left and the bulbous cup part of the glass that actually holds the wine is on the right with the edges that touch your lips gently tapering in from left to right. The way a TIG machine works is this. A small sample of the patient's blood is placed in a small cup in the machine and a um, pin suspended by a thin wire is dipped into the center of the sample of blood. The machine then rotates the cup back and forth um, with the pin in the center of the sample. Initially, the pin doesn't move at all. The blood is liquid, it just sloshes around the pin, and the pin stays still. But with time, the blood begins to form a clot between the pin and the walls of the cup, and the pin eventually has to move as the clot forces the pin to twist back and forth along with the cup. As the clot gets stronger and stronger, the pin has to twist more and more, approaching the same amount of rotation that the cup itself is doing. When we talk about the amplitude in a TIG test, we're talking about that rotation. The more rotation the uh, pin has to do, the higher amplitude shows up on the TIG graph. Eventually, the clot begins to break down, and the pin rotates less and less as the blood returns to a liquid. Given enough time, the clot dissolves entirely, and the pin is motionless. During that whole process, there are five values that a TIG generates. There are the R time, the K time, the alpha angle, the maximum amplitude, and the LY30, and we'll talk about each of those values. The R time is first, and that measures the time it takes before the coagulation cascade is activated and clot formation begins. This is at the start of the process, so the pin is sitting in the blood, not moving. Since there's no movement, that corresponds to the stem of the wine glass, just a flat line. A normal R time is 5 to 10 minutes, and a prolonged R time suggests a deficiency in clotting factors. The treatment is to give fresh frozen plasma, or FFP, which contains all of the coagulation factors. Next is the K time, or kinetic time. This measures the time between initial clot formation, which is the end of the R time, and the point where the clot reaches an amplitude of 20 millimeters. You can think of this as measuring the initial speed of clot formation. At this point, the pin sitting in the patient's blood is just starting to move. 
the coagulation cascade is started and the clot is beginning to adhere between the pin and the walls of the cup. Since the pin is rotating, the cup shape of the wine glass on the TIG graph is beginning to form. But at this point, the clot is more of a viscous slurry than a firm clot, so only the bottom of the wine glass is formed so far. A normal K-time is 1-3 to three minutes, and a prolonged K-time suggests the patient is low on fibrinogen. The treatment is usually to give cryoprecipitate, which contains fibrinogen. The alpha angle is really another way of measuring the initial speed of clot formation, and it's largely used the same way as the K-time. It's measured by drawing a line from the end of the R-time to the point representing the K-time and taking the angle of that line. A normal angle is 45 to 75 degrees. A decreased alpha angle is interpreted just like a prolonged K-time, suggesting a lack of fibrinogen, for which the treatment is usually cryoprecipitate. The MA, or maximum amplitude, is the point at which the clot is at its strongest, reflecting maximal interaction between platelets and fibrin, forcing the pin to rotate the greatest amount as the cup rotates around it. At the MA, the cup of the wine glass is at the widest point on the graph. A normal MA is about 50 to 75 millimeters. A decreased MA usually means a patient's platelet count or platelet function is decreased, and the treatment is usually to transfuse more platelets. The use of DDAVP or desmopressin can also be considered to improve platelet function. The final value is the LY30, or lysis of 30 minutes value. This is the percentage by which the clot amplitude is decreased from the maximum amplitude after 30 minutes have passed, which is a measure of fibrinolysis. A normal LY30 is 0 to 10%. An increased LY30 means that an abnormally high amount of fibrinolysis and clot breakdown is occurring, and this is often associated with trauma patients, creating the so-called death diamond shape. The treatment is to give an antifibrinolytic medication, usually tranexamic acid, also known as TXA, or aminocaproic acid. Please remember that the normal ranges I gave you for each value are the textbook ranges. The actual normal ranges the lab uses at your institution may be different, and you should use those. Now go forth and resuscitate responsibly. All right, great job. Thank you so much, Nate. Now on to our guest. I'm here with Dr. Peter Airball. Dr. Airball was very briefly a resident of mine when I first started as an attending. Since then, he went to private practice for a couple of years, then returned to academic medicine, where he has quickly distinguished himself in both obstetric anesthesia and perioperative medicine. He's currently the director of our Center for Perioperative Care, also known as our CPC clinic. Dr. Airball has spent a significant amount of time and effort familiarizing himself with the literature surrounding GLP-1 agonists and their perioperative implications. As one of our POCUS certified physicians, he also serves on the FLEX service where he performs gastric ultrasound. All these things make him the perfect person to talk about our subject today, GLP-1 agonists and their perioperative implications. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So to start, I'd like to ask you one of my standard get-to-know-you questions. If you could invite anyone in the world over for dinner, including somebody from the past or even from fiction, who would you invite? Um, boy, I really hate this question. I've gotten this question in uh, you know job interviews before, and it really, really something that um, really have struggled with in the past. Um, the answer that I usually give to this is the person that I named for, who was Saint Peter, um, who was a uh, biblical character, one of the, the early followers of Jesus, and he was. The, the first pope, the first person to, to lead the Catholic Church. I was raised a Catholic. You don't have to be a Catholic to understand most of this. Um, I would really love to have the opportunity to sit and have dinner with him because he's this, uh, in, historically, this incredible leader, this person who um, really took those formative years of the church and created it into the, the, the 
behemoth that it became. But when you look back through the, um, the descriptions of him in the, in the Bible, he's kind of a goofball. So everybody knows the story of Jesus walking on water. And when you see this, when you read the story of Jesus walking on water, what happens immediately after they see Jesus walking on water? Peter jumps out of the boat and just starts trying to walk on water himself. So he just does this incredibly impulsive and out of, a completely out of character thing for every, most other biblical characters. Other stories that, uh, that involve him in the Bible, um, things where like around the execution of Jesus, he just hops up and cuts this dude's ear off. Like totally impulsive and totally out of, out of character. So you have this person who's kind of an impulsive goofball who ends up being this incredible leader, this incredible person, um, and this, you know, this foundation of the church. And so I would really love to sit and have a conversation with him about how you take those, this incredible character that you have, these strong feelings that you have, and how do you translate that into the ability to lead people, to influence people, um, and to really create something on your own. Do you feel like you are also an impulsive goofball? Um, I'm not going to answer that question uh, for my own personal protection. Okay. But yeah, some people would probably describe me as, as impulsive um, and hopefully not too much of a goofball. I've never jumped out of the boat. Okay, well, that's fair. So steering back towards uh, medicine, what drew you towards your role in the perioperative space? Um, I really think that the future of anesthesiology is in the perioperative space. Um, with enough training and education, most people with reasonable critical thinking skills can become anesthetists, can provide an anesthetic in, to a patient on any given day. Um, where we really provide value is in the total evaluation, preparation, investigation, optimization, delivery of care, and delivery of post-op care. So I think that the, the, the present and the future of anesthesiology is in the perioperative space. I think that we undersell our ability to prepare patients for surgery um, and that we have a lot of value that we can add to most health systems in preventing bad things from happening afterwards, shortening hospitalizations, uh, improving patient satisfaction, provider satisfaction, surgeon satisfaction by really preparing people in advance in order to get them ready to go for surgery so that they can have a good outcome. Okay, so let's start by getting a brief overview of what a GLP-1 is. It's something that we've heard a lot about in the press. Uh, what, what is it? So GLP-1 agonist, receptor agonists, GLP-1-RAs, are a class of medication that have been around uh, since about 2005. Um, the first version of this medication that was uh, brought to market was called Exenatide, or Bieta is the brand name for it. Um, it was ultimately discovered from secretions from the uh, glands of the Gila monster, which is a wow. unusual lizard that is found in the Southwest United States. Um, they eat about three to four meals in a year um, and otherwise do not, do not need to consume anything throughout, the, throughout an entire year. Um, they are well known among people that live in the Southwest for being highly venomous. They're rumored to be fatally venomous, but there are no real case reports of that. Uh, there are, the bite is uh, reportedly incredibly painful, um, like 
uh, hot lava flowing up your arm if you get bit by this. They are an endangered, or not an endangered species, but they're a, a protected species. You can't have them as pets. Some people that have been bit by them have had them as pets. So I would not recommend having a Gila monster as a pet. I'll check that off my list. But this, this peptide was isolated from their oral secretions and has been studied to be uh, as a gastric inhibitory protein um, that helps to decrease gastric emptying, increase insulin secretion, uh, and has been utilized as a treatment for diabetes since the, the mid-2000s. So it's been uh, coming up on 20 years now that Bayet has been on the market. Over the years, they have discovered more and more of these uh, types of medications. More recently, things like um, uh, dulaglutide, semaglutide, trisepatide, and I'm probably mispronouncing these things that I've always gotten generic names wrong. Um, but these are more commonly known as Trulicity, Ozempic, uh, Wegovi, uh, uh, Mongero, and uh, most recently Zepbound is the, the newest name for, um, for trisepatide. The two of these medications that are the most commonly used now um, and that we see the most in the press about are the ones that are approved for weight loss, which are the Wegovi and the Zepbound, which again are the uh, weight loss formulations of the semaglutide and terzepatide. Um, those are the only two that have indi FDA indications for weight loss, um, and they have an entire titration protocol that people go through when they want to utilize these medications for weight loss specifically. These are also all medications that are used for treatment of type 2 diabetes, um, which is what they were initially found for. Um, and then as they studied the use of these, they found that people did tend to not only have significant decreases in their A1Cs, but also have uh, significant weight loss that occurred during their usage of these medications. Well, a lot of people want to lose weight. Uh, I could certainly use to lose a few pounds. Uh, so. Given that, should I just go on one of these GLP-1 agonists to lose 20 pounds? The FDA indications for these are that if you are obese uh, with a BMI over 30, or if you have a uh, BMI over 27 with multiple health problems, very similar to what the uh, qualifications for gastric bypass surgery are. Uh, so people that are under a BMI of, of 30 uh, should not be started on these medications. Um, as a labeled use. Uh, people that are BMI 27 to 30, but that have diabetes, heart failure, or other types of, of medical problems where they would potentially get improvement in those other medical problems by losing weight could potentially qualify to, uh, to receive these medications. Um, these are also, there are also some uh, problems with insurance coverage for these because they are very expensive. Uh, so that's another consideration to have in terms of whether you want to just immediately start losing weight with this. Um, and then there's also some other implications in terms of your other medical problems that you may have that would you know, limit your ability to take that. I see. What about uh, side effect profile? What can you expect uh, with general side effects for somebody on these medications? Um, most of the side effects are reasonably well tolerated. Uh, I think the most common things that you see when you talk to patients that take these medications are most severe in the first few weeks of taking them. Uh, things like uh, nausea and vomiting, um, constipation. Um, the burping really seems to be very, very uh, limiting and upsetting to people. Um, 
when you talk to people that have used these medications for long periods of time, those side effects tend to tend to wane as time goes on. That doesn't mean that it will for everybody, but that is a common report. A lot of those side effects, especially the belching and the constipation, are really well treated by continuing to eat. And it sounds very, um, this doesn't sound very intuitive, because you're taking these medications and one of the primary effects of them is that they decrease your gastric emptying. So food moves slower out of your stomach. It makes you less hungry and want to eat less. Where people really struggle with these when you read uh, testimonials from people that have used these medications is that they don't want to eat at all. And then they end up in a state of starvation ketosis. They end up with these sulfury burps where there's absolutely nothing going through their stomach. They end up not losing weight because they are in a period of starvation and their metabolic rate drops and they can't actually uh, burn any fat because they're simply shutting down. So some people have found success by continuing to eat or increasing the amount of calories that they take in in order to get their metabolism back up. The constipation, that's just good old fashioned American diet, low fiber diet, um, where you're already in a relatively low fiber state. The only thing that's gonna really get those bowels moving is to really get some good, you know, have a good balanced diet. Um, when I've talked to patients that are taking these medications, the big things that they complain about, like I said, the nausea, vomiting, constipation, very rarely diarrhea, but it can, it can exist. Um, you do have to maintain a, if you're using these medications strictly for weight loss, you do have to maintain a desire and a, a plan to lose weight. Um, I distinctly remember talking to a patient who had been on Ozempic at the at a weight loss dose for about four years um, had been prescribed this for diabetes. Her A1C was now in a nice normal range. Had been she was very happy with it, but she hadn't lost any weight. Had never even considered the possibility that she would lose weight with this. Um, didn't know that it was a, a medication used for weight loss. So there is still an element of needing to intentionally diet, intentionally exercise, increase your metabolic rate, increase your overall activity in order to utilize those calories that you are taking in. There are some other rarer side effects that I think we definitely should talk about and consider things like pancreatitis, gallstones, um, things like that that are for sure people need to consider before they start these medications. Um, and then the black box label um, is about uh, MEN or multiple endocrine, multiple endocrine neoplasia, um, thyroid cancers and things like that. Those are based off of some uh, rat studies um, that have not really not been well studied in humans. Okay, so let's uh, zoom in a little bit to our field, anesthesiology. How do these uh, interact with and affect our anesthetic plans? Directly with the anesthetic plans, you don't see a whole lot of direct interaction there. These are not purely hypoglycemic medications in which similar to you know, sulfonylureas or some of those other medications where if they take them or in the perioperative space, they may end up unexpectedly hypoglycemic. The big thing that we're worried about with these medications is that delayed gastric emptying. One of our most feared complications in anesthesia is uh, regurgitation and aspiration of gastric contents. So we get you off to sleep, you, you're, you know, you're, we relax your muscles, your stomach is full, the food comes up through your esophagus and it goes down your trachea, you end up with an aspiration pneumonia or an aspiration pneumonitis. Both of those are very bad. You don't want them, I don't want them, nobody should want them. So what we're, this is typically why we have these recommendations for people to be 
without any food in their stomach to be NPO, so they can't have anything to eat or drink for a certain period before surgery. When you're taking these medications and you have delayed gastric emptying, you may have unexpected contents in your stomach that shouldn't be there. So you may have followed all the guidelines. You didn't eat anything for eight hours beforehand. You didn't drink anything for eight hours beforehand. You show up on the day of surgery and your stomach is full. It's a result of the, the intended function of these medications is to slow down the exit, the transit of food through the, through the GI system. And there are a number of case reports in the literature. There's a number of things in the media of people who followed NPO guidelines and still ended up with regurgitation and aspiration um, or had full stomachs when they did endoscopy and you know looked down in the stomach to see what was there. So we've been very concerned about that particular point and how this plays into our overall risk mitigation that we can do in the perioperative space for patients. Okay, so given those risks, what can we do to mitigate them? We really don't know. I don't have a very good answer for that. Um, there are guidelines from the American Society of Anesthesiologists, and there are some guidelines from the uh, GI Society as to what you're supposed to do with these medications. We've looked through all of these, and I've got files full of, of summaries of studies that we've talked about how we can best minimize patients' risk. Nobody is ever 0% risk for something bad happening to them during an operation. Um, and it's not that these problems don't exist for people that aren't taking these medications. Bad diabetics, type 1 diabetics, often have what is called gastroparesis, where their stomach does, food doesn't move through their GI system as it is. Um, and so you may have this kind of combination of issues that are happening where you're not sure whether this is from the gastroparesis, from the medication-induced gastroparesis, or from some other problem that these people are having, or whether they were simply non-compliant with the directions that they got. So there's guidelines that come from all different organizations that are telling us simo some similar things and some different things. And what we at, at our institution here in Cincinnati have done is try and provide the, the best guidelines to patients and to surgeons and anesthesiologists to minimize their risk of something bad happening while maximizing the risk that they can get this procedure or treatment that they need in order to further their, their healthcare journey. So if they need a colonoscopy for their health screening, we want to minimize the risk that they're going to aspirate during that or that somebody is going to cancel it. If somebody has colon cancer and they need their colon removed, we want to make sure that they're going to have it done as they plan it. I understand that patients are, make lots of plans around surgery. They take time off from work. They get rides. They do all those other things. It's expensive to be here. We want to get people through surgery in a timely fashion and get them the treatment that they deserve while giving them the best possible chance to have a good outcome on the backside. So what should we tell patients who show up to clinic who might be on one of these medications? Is there an amount of time that we should hold them or should we continue them? We are still looking into exactly how we're supposed to do this. We need to better understand the glycemic control, the blood sugar control that, that goes on with these medications. The biggest problem with these long-acting medications like the Ozempic and the Mongero are that they have a, the terzepatide has a five-day half-life and semaglutide has a seven-day half-life. Typically, when we talk about getting medications out of the system, we talk about waiting four half-lives. So you're talking about telling somebody to stop taking these medications for a full month, which oftentimes we don't have that kind of lead time to even begin with. So I don't see somebody, don't always see somebody a month in advance of their surgery in order to be able to tell them to stop it.
oftentimes you don't have that time to begin with. If somebody has a screening colonoscopy and they turn out to have colon cancer and they need that resected and it needs to happen, we're not going to wait four weeks just to, to empty out to make sure that the stomach is empty. Currently, what the American Society of Anesthesiologists recommends is that you hold the week prior's dose of a long-acting week-long medication or you know, once-a-week medication. Uh, the, it's not really clear that that is reducing people's risk because you're not getting to a lower serum level of this medication in a way that you can reliably say, no, this is no longer having an effect on their, on their stomach. What we as our institution have done is we gathered all this information, all the, looked through all these studies, talked to a bunch of in other uh, academic institutions and private institutions to see how they were instituting this. And what we ultimately found to be the lowest risk thing to do is to hold the medication for at least a week beforehand and then institute a clear liquid diet for the 24 hours before the procedure. So clear liquids isn't just water, but it's you know any carbonated soda, uh, broths, jello, um, you know things that don't have you know pulp-free juices, things like that, that would still have enough sugar and calories to sustain you through the day. You're probably going to feel pretty hungry, but it's not like you can't eat anything at all. But it, the point of that is to put things that are easy to move through the stomach even with delayed gastric emptying, with slow gastric motility, put light things in the stomach that are gonna move through quickly. And then we have a strict eight hour NPO time that we give people before surgery. So there are other things within the ASA guidelines for people that are not on these medications where they could have clear liquids two hours beforehand, a light meal six hours beforehand. Kind of take all of that and say the safer thing to do for you, the lower risk thing to do for you is to say, don't put anything in your stomach at all for eight hours prior, except maybe some sips of water with some medications that are necessary that you need to take prior to surgery. Beyond that, so if people follow these guidelines, they hold the medication for the week beforehand, they follow the diet appropriately, and then if they show up on the day of surgery, there's an evaluation that should happen by the anesthesiologist as to whether they are having any signs of bloating or GI upset? So do they feel nauseated? Do they feel like they need to throw up? If they do feel the need to vomit or they feel like they're bloated, they feel like their stomach isn't empty, we can perform a gastric ultrasound, point of care ultrasound or POCUS. So what we do with that is look at the upper abdomen, evaluate the stomach, see if there's any solid contents in it, liquid contents in it, um, and follow a uh, formula or algorithm to determine the, whether this should be considered a full stomach or not. Once we've determined whether they have a full stomach by ultrasound or if they don't have these symptoms, we just proceed on to the next step of this algorithm, um, which is to decide what the lowest risk type of anesthetic would be for them. For some patients who are having very time-sensitive surgery, so cancer surgeries, um, emergent surgeries, uh, those people should proceed to surgery with aspiration risk. So this would be as though somebody uh, didn't follow NPO guidelines at all. This is like before all of the GLP-1 agonist stuff started, there were people that we took to surgery despite the fact that they violated their NPO guidelines because of the, the overall risk of waiting was worse than the risk of, of proceeding with a full stomach. So things like doing rapid sequence, sequence intubation would to minimize the risk of uh, gastric regurgitation and pulmonary aspiration. Um, beyond that, we really don't have a whole lot that goes much further than that, um, other than potentially delaying somebody if the surgery is not time sensitive 
um, and that they are not or if they are not willing to accept the risks of undergoing this procedure with potentially a full stomach. So how did you learn how to do gastric ultrasound? There's an ASA course um, on point of care ultrasound um, where you do some didactic learning. You learn the kind of physics and mechanisms that go into ultrasound. Uh, and then ultimately it's just putting your probes on people, um, getting the getting the curvilinear probe, putting it on people in, in pre-op and seeing what the seeing what a normal empty stomach looks like. Uh, as I've taught this to people, I've really found that people struggle, that our learners struggle to find a full stomach because so many people that we see in pre-op are appropriately NPO, don't have anything in their stomach, and that nice tight little stomach sitting behind the liver very easy to find. Sometimes after I have lunch, I'll go down with my learners and say, find my stomach. And they can't find it because the stomach is grossly enlarged with my, with my lunch sitting in there. And it can be so profoundly different than what you're used to seeing that you've really got to see some full stomachs in order to see what the whole thing looks like. So it's a little bit of didactic learning, and then experience, 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 experience. You have to see empty stomachs, full stomachs, everything in between. Do it to yourself, do it to friends, do it to neighbors, do it to your patients, whatever. You just you need to get, get your hands on probes, put the probes on bellies, evaluate those images, and see what you can find. Shout out to Mark Pies on our hospital cafeteria for providing us with full stomachs. Mark Pies is, is profoundly easy to find with gastric, gastric ultrasound. <laughs> That's good to know. Okay, so once we have hopefully uh, intubated these patients successfully, do you think that it is worthwhile to put an OG or an NG tube in these patients versus a standard patient? Or is there a role for OG or NG prior to uh, going off to sleep? I have never placed a preoperative OG or NG. Um, I think that that's a very big ask of patients, especially if you don't have a really good indication. Sure. Uh, I was taught as a resident that you could do this for small bowel obstructions and things like that where you're really worried about the possibility of a very full stomach from bowel obstruction and the possibility of uh, regurgitation and aspiration. I was also taught by some of our um, more experienced colleagues when I was an early learner that anybody that gets an RSI for the beginning of their procedure should get gastric decompression. In my modern practice, I find that that's maybe 50-50 with the uh, younger cohort of people that I work with. Um, I have looked for studies on this and have not found any real guidelines or evidence to say that this reduces people's risk, but I would caution people that are not doing OGs or that in general are doing RSIs because patients have taken these medications and may not have been compliant with it or whatever, you're worried about a full stomach, that you continue to consider that throughout the case and you don't do things like deep or anesthetized extubation, that you make sure that uh, airway reflex, protective reflexes have returned by, before you go ahead and remove your airway securement device. Um, or that you don't do things like consider LMAs for these procedures because I think that that is, I think that's hard to justify if you're so worried about an empty stomach or about a full stomach, but then you're going to not put in a secure airway, I think that's really hard to look back on and say, why did I do this? Um, and to be able to justify what you did. That makes a lot of sense. 
Well, zooming out, what advice would you give to anesthesiologists generally who are increasingly encountering patients treated with GLP-1 agonists? We need to know more. We need to study more. We need to see more. We need to do more. We need to be able to really evaluate what holding these medications does for people, which right now we're just telling people not to take them. We don't really know what's happening from a glycemic control standpoint there. So we need to work better with our endocrine, endocrinology colleagues to find out what happens when you stop taking these medications. Um, we need to get more of a patient experience involved in, in this as well to see what they are feeling when they're stopping these medications and see how those things are, are moving along for them and see how they're feeling when they're not taking them. Um, and then we need to continue to, to gather information about the risk of aspiration. Lots of people, have, lots of institutions have very different policies and protocols related to this. And we need to do a big global overview of how, of what policies are working. I think that overall, when you review anesthesia literature, that the incidence of uh, regurgitation and aspiration is overall low. I am suspicious that that is artificially low. I believe that there is aspiration that goes on that we may not be catching. It may either we are not seeing it, we're not recognizing it, or it's simply not clinically significant enough to matter. Um, all of those things are real problems and things that we can improve upon. But I think that uh, similar to when you look through some of the literature about um, awareness monitors, that the overall it's very difficult to show any improvement with those things because the overall incidence of awareness and surgical recall is so incredibly low with modern techniques. I think that the overall incidence of aspiration is so incredibly low that it's hard to find big increases in that. And when you look at some of these studies that have been done on, um, on people that are taking GLP-1 agonists, you find that there are increased gastric content, retained gastric contents, and about 1% more of patients than people that aren't taking these medications. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but the overall incidence of aspiration being so incredibly low means a 1% increase could be a, a multifold uh, bloom in people that are having aspiration, having a pneumonitis, getting a pneumonia. So I don't think that we should overlook those relatively small numbers because even small numbers can have a big impact on patients as we move forward. Do you have any recommendations for folks that might want to do some further reading on this topic? Um, the, the ASA guidelines, I think, are somewhat on the vague side because I don't think that we have enough data in order to, to really give firm guidelines that say this is exactly what you're supposed to do. There are tons of studies on these, on these medications. There are um, studies that work on or that look at the effects of the different medications over time. Um, and so I think that the, my recommendation would be to look up some of these um, studies on, on the basic biomechanics of what these medications do uh, in the body and what happens over time, what happens uh, as, as you use these medications more and more. Um, and, and just to continue to keep an open eye out for emerging studies, for new studies that really take a look at, at, that go beyond the case reports, that go into more of the, you know, real science and, uh, you know, big, big collection of data, collection of big data that, uh, of what these medications are doing to people. Okay. You said in the past that you've attributed all your success to my brief mentorship 
of you during your CA3 year when I was a first year attending. I've never said those words before. Uh, I, I agree to disagree. Beyond that, <laughs> what style points or points of personal preference have brought you success in your career in and out of the operating room? You have to care. You have to care about every patient that's in front of you, care about all of your colleagues. You have to care about yourself. You have to care that everybody is here for the common good. Everybody is here to make people better. Everybody is here because they want to be. So when a patient tells you that they have a problem, you have to care that they're not lying to you. You have to care that they are here because they want to get better and you are here to make them better. You are here to give them what they need to get better. I, I'm gonna change that just a little bit. Early in my medical school career, we had a lecture in which they said, you don't heal people, you provide them with the tools to heal themselves. So you need to, you need to care enough that patients feel that you care about them and that you want them to get better and that you want them to have a good experience. This is every day for me is showing up and providing anesthetics for people and getting people through the preoperative time. And every once in a while you find yourself overlooking things because you've started to not care about things. And when you don't care, it really affects the way that patients look at you. It affects the way that your colleagues look at you and the way that they think about you. You have to remember that every patient that is having surgery, you know, the saying is there, there's no minor surgery that happens to me. So even something that seems very minor to you as the provider may be the worst day of this patient's life. It may be the most physiologically challenging thing that they've ever gone through. When you look at a routine surgery, it is going to be the, the hardest thing that this person's body has ever faced. Without anesthesiologists, without anesthetists, without residents that are involved in these patients' care, they would not survive most routine surgeries. Physiologically, they could not tolerate it. We are here to keep them safe. We are here to provide, to prepare them, to provide for them, and to get them ready to heal themselves when it's time to get out of the hospital. So my style point is that you have to care. You have to treat everybody like that's the most important person in front of them because to them, this is the most important day of their life. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for having me here. That's it for today's episode of Style Points. Feel free to like or subscribe. If you'd like to contact me or even be a guest on the show, feel free to email me at stylepointspodcast.gmail.com. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Wait a second. Wrong podcast. I guess I'll have to come up with a different tagline. Okay, I think I've got it. We're all done. Open your eyes. Open your eyes.